Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalchuk. One of my favorite memoirs is Dog Years by Mark Doty. Doty is mostly known as a poet, but he wrote this memoir about how his two dogs helped him during a difficult period of his life. Oh, I love I love memoirs about people's dogs. It and... is the sweetest. It is like I totally cried. It's amazing. I'm Eliza Rosenberry. I love the memoirs by David Sedaris. They're so funny and strange, and I highly recommend all his books, but a recent favorite is Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. His writing is so witty and delightful, and I'm always just surprised to find myself feeling emotional at the end of all his essays. Oh, my gosh. So I read Me Talk Pretty one day, Mm -hmm. standing in line for security to fly to the Frankfurt Book Fair <laughs> right when we started bombing Afghanistan after 9 oh 11. And I was standing online cracking up, and everyone else was like, We're going to die. It was so funny. People I thought know, I was insane. I don't know what story I thought you were going to tell, but it wasn't that one. It was so, it was just the opposite. I was laughing my head off, and everybody else was like biting their nails. Anyway, <laughs> I has, highly recommend that effect on David people. Sedaris for Nervous Flyers. Yeah. <laughs> um, on today's show, family takes on a new meaning when a young father has his life turned upside down by an unexpected cancer diagnosis. New York Times bestselling author Bruce Feiler chronicles the journey of family ties and friendship in the memoir Council of Dads, now a major NBC primetime drama. And later in the show, Bruce joins us in the studio to answer questions from readers. But first, we wanted to share this wonderful review of the podcast. Amanda said, this is my favorite podcast. Tavia and Eliza do such a great job talking about the book and having a conversation with the author that I almost always want to read the book, even if it didn't necessarily interest me before. I particularly enjoy the sample at the end, which is usually just enough to get me hooked. I love that. And now we present to you Council of Dads. Abridged. A young father is diagnosed with a cancerous tumor in his leg. Worried about the absence of a father figure in his young daughter's lives, he contacts six of his closest male friends and asks them to advise his children through the various passages of life, just in case he can't be there to do so himself. He calls the group the Council of Dads. Each member has their area of expertise, so the girls know who to turn to for a specific issue when they're looking for additional guidance. Their assembled wisdom reads like a poem of deep truths. Approach the cow. Pack your flip-flops. Don't see the wall. Tend your tadpoles. Live the questions. And harvest miracles. The book chronicles the real-life experiences of best-selling author Bruce Feiler as he lived his lost year. That was the year he was treated for cancer, the year he turned to the fathers and father figures in his life for guidance, and the year he brought together his council of dads. So, Eliza, what did you think of this book? This was a very emotional book, and I really enjoyed how the author really went there and wasn't afraid to dive into the really sensitive, personal, and really emotional moments of fatherhood and, and illness. And I, I can't really think of other books off the top of my head that approached fatherhood from, from this perspective. I thought it was really, really moving. I agree. When, I remember the first time I read this book, because I read this book 10 years ago, and I was so pleased to revisit it for the podcast. I remember crying at times, just, you know, when he, the letters that he wrote 
to his family and friends were so raw and so real. It really was astounding. I think one of the things we're going to talk about is sort of this sort of new idea of masculinity or maleness. And I think he writes the just this book itself as an example of that. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you mentioned, the letters that he writes to his friends and family during during the course of his last year. And there's a few, maybe four or five of these letters that are in the book. And he writes them as sort of like, you know how you get like a, a letter. Sometimes people send letters around the holidays, like yeah. a recap of their year yeah. or whatever. And it's sort of like a dear friends and, a, you know, here's what everybody's doing. But Bruce Feiler seems to do that much more often. And I really liked that that was, I don't know if that's something he does in a normal year or if it was just something he was doing under these specific circumstances. But I really admired that sort of open communication. You know, it can be so easy to just passively observe your friends and family's lives on social media or, or you know, you hear things from other people. But this idea of sort of sending a letter out to everyone, um, as, as he does in the book, I really admired. I thought it was a brilliant expediency on his part to not to have to update <laughs> so true. dozens and dozens of concerned associates and acquaintances. But um, I do admire it. And I do wish that I, too, could have more meaningful correspondence with friends and family throughout the year. Another thing that I thought about this book is that, you know, when he talks about the men that make up his council, he he, he gives them each a chapter and they each discuss sort of what they're going to offer to his daughters, what they could bring, what lessons they would teach, what aspect of Bruce's personality they would convey. And even though um, the council wasn't built for me, I felt like the advice they were giving could apply to my life as well. And I really enjoyed that. It was it was a little bit self-helpy in the same way as it was just this really heartfelt memoir. Yeah. And I came away with it feeling like, oh, yeah, I've, I've learned some good advice for my own life. Yeah. Were there any of the of the six dads in the council that you felt like like their advice particularly spoke to you? Well, I totally related to the travel dad. I, yeah. I'm like blanking on his name right now, but um, I just loved the, the his approach to travel. He was Bruce's camp counselor when he was in the travel camp. Mm-hmm. And um, I myself have traveled a bit, not the way Bruce has, but you know what he says about how the most meaningful moments are when you can't get into the museum and you go to a cafe and then you start talking to a local. I mean, those are the standout memories for me on all my trips where where I bumped elbows with someone who lived there. And yeah, yeah, that sentiment. I as soon as you started talking about it, I remembered that exact scene in the book and feeling struck by it. Also, for me, it was um, the dad who was a journalist. Yes. Is that who it was? And he was like, he was like, I always, I think his advice is always about like, ask, like engaging with the questions or asking the tough questions. Or he says he doesn't, I guess he's like a little bit of a contrarian. You know, he's always sort of like playing devil's advocate or, or approaching things from another perspective, which I really appreciated. Yes, I know. He was the one who turned Bruce down initially. Yeah. Bruce said, will you be in my council? And he said, no, because you're going to live. <laughs> And then he accepted. Yeah. When Bruce insisted. Yeah. I thought that Bruce was so forward looking with this book, you know, and and with the council, which I really liked. But I also enjoyed the parts of the book that were reflective and more of a retrospective look at his own father and his own grandfathers and sort of this examination of what his fatherhood looked like and meant over the course of a few generations. And, you know, he 
he explores both the positive and the negative lessons that he sort of sees. You know, he sees his grandfathers as being, you know, really brilliant and interested in in their work and having all these passions, but also, you know, sometimes unengaged with the family life in a way that he, Bruce, feels like is really important to him. And he also has conversations with all of his friends about their own fathers. Yeah, I love that part. And I I loved the little details that he would give about his family. My favorite story that he told about the grandfathers was the one who had a collection of 9,000 epitaphs. Oh, my gosh. How I mean, that's so many. One of the things that I like about that story is that grandfather didn't even have his own epitaph. So there's a couple other things about this book that I just want to quickly mention, because it sounds like such a heavy book. But I think it's a story of great generosity. Bruce sets up this sort of composite dad for his daughters, even though he selfishly is grieving the potential loss of parenting them. He puts that aside to create this this, you know, auxiliary parent for his daughter so that they won't be lacking. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to point out is that there were moments where I chuckled outright in this book. Yeah, it's very, very funny. Brings a lot of humor to it. And, and, you know, I think he even says that he and his family looked for humor in the disease wherever they could, Mm -hmm. even though that sounds sort of morbid, but they did a pretty good job of it. Yeah, I agree. So the other thing that we should mention about Council of Dads is that it's now a TV show. Yes. Oh, my God. I watched the first episode. I really liked it. Yeah, I, I just finished the first episode, too. And I really liked it also. And I feel like it's going to be so interesting to see how the show evolves because there's so much that's the same from the book. But there's also a lot of things that are really different. But I think like the tone for sure, which is what we you know, we love the tone of the book and and the tone of the show is like totally the same. Absolutely. It strikes all the same emotional chords. But, you know, having read the book and then watching the show, it was, you know, I noticed right away like, oh, the, you know, the family structure is different and, you know, there's fewer dads on the council and oh gosh, the dad actually dies in the show, which is not a spoiler because it happens, you know, in the first episode. But um I just think, you know, if you like shows where you kind of cry, this is totally up your alley. Quick reminder, we love hearing from you. Join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and pose your own questions to the authors who appear on the show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the Council of Dads audiobook. Today, we are joined by Bruce Feiler, whose book, Council of Dads, is out now. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, Bruce. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you. So we just wanted to start by asking you, what was the last walk that you took? Wow. Wow. I'm four seconds into this, and I'm already about to cry. That is not (laughs) a good sign. So I should go back and explain what that question means. In the summer of 2008, I switched to doctors. I actually had gotten kicked off my insurance, and I had to go to a new doctor. And this new doctor actually was filling out electronic forms and not looking me in the eye. And I walked out, and I said, I need a new doctor because I need a doctor who's going to look me in the eye. That doctor saved my life because she called the next day and said this routine blood test had an elevated enzyme in my blood. And she said, it's probably a fluke. Let's just test test it again. We tested it again, and it was higher. And so she said, I've never seen anybody with this. 
And she sent me down a series of tests. They found something that they didn't know what it was in my leg, and I and I kept getting you know CAT scans and sonograms and all of these things. And on Tuesday afternoon, I got a call from a doctor who said the following: "The tumor in your leg is not consistent with a benign tumor." So I'm a writer, right? So I'm already thinking like that's a double negative, but it takes a second for me to convert that double negative into a much more horrifying negative that I have cancer. And so she says, don't take another step. Uh, go get crutches. And so I go get crutches and I come home and I collapse on my bed with these crutches. And I was at that time in my life best known for a book that we all did together before some of your time called Walking the Bible that, as you know, became a thing. Spent a year and a half on the bestseller list. I went back and made a TV show about it. And this is what I did all through my 20s. I went back and forth and I wrote what became ultimately five books about the Bible. I was sort of the walking person, like because that name, Walking the Bible, sort of attended me. And when I get this call about my leg, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm now the walking guy who might never walk again. Because it turned out I had a nine-inch osteogenic sarcoma in my left femur. And so the first response to this was not walking. Like, get crutches. Do whatever you do, don't fall. Because if you fall, your, your femur is brittle. It will send the cancer over your body, and we will not be able to control it. So walking from the first second was part of it. And so what happened was um, I then went through this extremely elaborate, awful year of five months of chemo, 17-hour surgery in which doctors took out my femur. And I realized very early on, if you're sick, you can't deal with 100 phone calls a day. Like, you've got doctors, you've got nurses. In this case, I had young children. And so I realized I had to manage the flow of information. So I appointed my brother in a very grand way. You're like the you know minister of information. And I wrote a series of letters. Essentially, every month, I wrote a letter to everybody, sort of updating them on my progress. And the letter ended every time because I was the walking guy and I couldn't walk. And I ended the letter, take a walk for me. And that became a kind of signature line. And then ultimately when we, when I decided to turn this all into a book, we took those letters and that those letters become, as you know, sort of a main braid of the book, uh, yeah. The Council of Death. Yeah, those we letters love, are so amazing. We Such really love them. Yeah. yeah. And it's raw, it's real, that happened in real time. I didn't change them. It's actually what it felt like. Uh, the rest of the book, of course, was written, you know, sort of at the end of that year. But that was sort of the account of what of what it was, what, what it was like. It's funny. I said to Eliza when we were talking earlier about the book, I said those letters feel so raw and real. That's exactly how I described them. Yeah, I'm not surprised you didn't edit them at all. So, what is the last walk that you took? Oh, I didn't answer the question. Shocking. Uh, <laughs> wait a I'm the questioner. I'm the one who asks people their life stories. <laughs> when is the last? What is the last walk that I took that was just a walk? I live in Brooklyn. I live in Brooklyn Heights. There's an ice cream store down by uh, the river called Ample Hills. There was a day, <laughs> the end of winter recently, when it suddenly seemed like spring. And we said, you know what? Uh, daylight saving time is early this year. And let's go take a walk and go get some ice cream. So it was actually recently. And that was with your daughters? That was with my daughters, Eden and Tybee. Each of the six members of the council have a specific lesson to imbue upon your daughters. The lessons are, if I may be quite reductive, how to travel, how to live, how to dream, how to remember, how to think, and how to see. Which stand out to you today as primary and or are there any that you would change? 
I was thinking about this because I left my children uh, at breakfast this morning to come here, and Linda had made a, has made a table with all of the sayings around the table, and my children eat breakfast at it. In another book I did with you guys, The Secrets of Happy Families, we have family meetings around, uh, around this table, so it's sort of the heart of our family. Uh, the question is, which of them do I find most valuable? Is that the phrase you used? Well, I said primary, but... Maybe maybe it's the bias of telling the story, but I still like Approach the Cow. Okay, so Jeff Shomlin was my... Uh, taught me how to travel, and travel, and even in this conversation, is kind of central to my lives and to my life and central to my writing life. And he's the one who taught me how to travel. He read a, led a trip to Europe that I did uh, the summer before I went to college. And I was a little older and a little bit odder than the other people on the trip. And we were in a youth hostel in, in Holland, and they were downstairs dancing to Michael Jackson. I kind of went out. We were in a castle. It was a, There was a moat, and there was a field, and there were cows. And Jeff was like, you want to you go, have you ever been cow tipping? And I was like, cow what? He's like, cow tipping, you know, cow sleep standing up. And before I went, we'd gone through the moat, over the fence, and we were, like, approaching this cow. And, you know, Jeff really taught me how to travel. He's a man of gusto and, like, taking risks and going out there embracing the world. And this became kind of a central part um, of my life. But the truth is, we never did tip the cow because <laughs> cows don't sleep standing up. It's actually it's actually a myth. Uh, but he's the one who said, I, I said, if my kids come to you and you could teach them how to travel, what would you tell them? He said, I would tell them to approach life um, and a trip and a journey as if kid looking at a mud puddle like you can look in and see the reflection and touch it but really the best way to do it is to jump in and splash around so i want to see you back here covered in mud at the end of your trip and so that to me is just a kind of a way i you know live the hell out of your life and and my life is an example of this because i almost died at 43. bruce in the book on at least in my copy it's on page 95 you write i began to detect a new kind of maleness one that would have been completely alien to my father's father or even to my own father who has a more distant relationship with even his closest male friends. What did forming the council show you about this sort of generational shift in parenting, friendship, and and masculinity? I somehow knew you were going to ask this question because in some ways it's the most interesting thing about this, right? Because uh, dad's much more involved in the parenting space. And this is a massive change unknown in human history. There's basically no other species of animal that does this. You know, there's a few birds. But basically that have dads involved. And that cre- that creates opportunity. It creates tension between moms and dads. But I think that there is this whole population of men who care a lot more about their children. And I think that... I am naturally this kind of more empathic, emotionally engaged man. Um, Most of the men in my council are. We tend to be married to women who are high-powered executives and, you know, sort of less, you know, uh, conforming to the social stereotype. And so that's who I am. That tends to be the kind of man I'm attracted to. And I realized in the process of of doing this that that's what this council was, the people who would agree for this. That was then. Now we are sitting here today, and what has happened in the intervening decade? The patriarchy, you know, Me Too, toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. M- malehood is under assault and under um, reimagination and an under a 
pressure to redefine what has been the instinct and it turns out a, a great <laughs> oppressive force for women and working moms and uh, business and so many aspects of our daily lives. Now I look at this and I think, again, what I wasn't thinking then, it, this turns out to be a council of positive male role models. Like the, that's what this was. That was a way of saying, remember, I'm doing it for girls, of course. Lots of people have done these who, who may have boys, but I'm doing it for girls. And it turns out that's the biggest change between then and now. And that turns out to be another reason we need this is we need a way to say not all men conform to one type. Right. There are and, and you need to be able to have these relationships with men and men and women, because especially now in the workplace. Right. This is really challenged. Right. Men and women can't necessarily go off for a drink after work. That's going to raise questions. Right. There's all of these dimensions. And so even better to practice this in the family space to say, yeah, here's a macho man, right? But there's also men who are more you know, empathic and emotionally in tuned, and that turns out to be a great set of role models to have floating around the house. So this leads us right into my next question, which is, did forming the council change your relationships with these six men? Yeah, it's very hard to describe it. The answer is yes. In fact, we can move on to the next question. Yes. (laughs) How and why? And I I would say here's my answer to that. My my answer to that is that if you go back to this changing nature of the family I was talking about, and you can read it in William Morrow's paperback of The Secrets of Happy Families, the effect of that change is that people work, people have family. The thing that's most in crisis today is friendship. Because, because men and women are working, they go home, they want to be with their family, and it's friends who get pushed aside. I actually think that we're in something of a crisis of friendship. It seems odd in the Facebook, everybody's friending and liking, but we know that that's an artificial kind of shallow thing. And what this did was created this bridge between our friends and what's most important in our lives is our children. It sort of invites them in. So it creates this category of people that is not family and not a friend. It's something in between. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Bruce Feiler, whose book, Council of Dads, is out now. You can read more about Bruce's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, Bruce answers more questions from readers. And later in the show, we ask about his literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by An Elegant Defense by Pulitzer Prize winning author Matt Richtel. An Elegant Defense chronicles the epic quest to unlock the mysteries of the human immune system. It's available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. This episode, we're speaking with Bruce Feiler, author of the award-winning memoir, which is now a major primetime drama on NBC, Council of Dads. We have another question from a reader. One of our um, Facebook page members named Catherine is a reader of Council of Dads, and she wanted to know from you about the TV show. Do you think the TV show will satisfy fans of the book? The TV show is a piece of art. We all went to my hometown, and Savannah, Georgia, is sort of out of the way. And so everyone had nothing to do but fall in love with one another. And so there's this incredible atmospherics to the show, as you've seen. There is this there the, the storylines uh, the cast all loves one another there's this incredible emotion the theme is very strong 
it's also television, right? And so television needs plot. So there's a lot of plot. There's many more children than I have. There's there's many, you know, dramas that unfold in the course of the year. It's very different. So if people are expecting my story, they might be disappointed, but I think you're going to be captivated because they're true to the idea. This idea is bigger than all of us. We are its custodian. It will always be in the world. It has always been in the world. Be true to it. So this is true to the idea, and that's what's so satisfying. And for that reason, I don't think anybody will be disappointed. They will find that it will I mean, I've done a lot. <laughs> this book was a bestseller. Sanjay Gupta made a documentary about it on CNN. I've done a lot to get it into the world, but nothing can get an idea into the world like Hollywood. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on the show and on the book. We have one more question for uh-oh. you. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> this, is the, this is the doozy question. This is the doozy question. <laughs> Each episode, we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? It's a book that you've either always meant to read or one that you started reading and never finished. So, Bruce, what is your literary white whale? I just caught a whale recently because I went back and I and I spent two summers reading every page of Les Miserables. Wow. Uh, oh. I, I divided it over two summers. So I'm here to tell you, you can catch your <laughs> From whale. From the other side. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the first thing. I'm going to have to say Middlemarch. Ah, that's a great one. Yeah. Tavia, have you read that? No, I really want Me to. Neither. Yeah, I really want to. That's a great one. Yeah. So you haven't read it because you're worried that you're not going to like it? I just haven't got around to it. Yeah, same. Same. It never came up on my college courses. And then when I was out of college, I was like, only contemporary fiction for me. (laughs) Yeah, I I do like mixing in the classics. You see, I just I mean, I like going back to those Mm -hmm. books that I always wanted to read. But for whatever reason, I can never find the reason to make it Middlemarch. That's the thing that I don't know why. If it maybe it just kind of feels middle to me. Maybe mm. it kind of feels uh, not urgent enough. Yeah. Right. That's my white whale. Right. Oh, yeah. That's such a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel urgent, so you just never pick it up. It doesn't feel urgent. I was really happy to make it through, you know, Victor Hugo, right? I really want to do Count of Monte Cristo because I've, I feel like I want to go back into that, I don't know, maybe it's a boyhood uh, swashbuckling thing. Yeah. Yeah. People tell me that my daughters would love it, uh, would love it too. Middle March is my white whale. That's a great one. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed talking to you. We love the book. Thank you so much for being here. Take a walk for me. Absolutely. Right after the show. <laughs> <laughs> that was Bruce Feiler whose book, Council of Dads, is out now. To find out more about Bruce's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with Kate Elizabeth Russell about My Dark Vanessa. But you can always stay in touch with us in between episodes. We're both on Instagram. Find us at Tavia Reads and at Eliza's Reading, and of course, at Book Club Girl. You can join in on these conversations, too. We'll be heading into the studio to interview Leanne Dolan, author of The Sweeney Sisters, in a few weeks, which is really exciting. If you have questions for Leanne, post them in the comments on our Book Club Girls Facebook group, or leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336. You can also send us an email, 
thegirls at bookclubgirl.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if your question gets asked on the show, we will send you a free book. A free book. <laughs> Before we go, a big thank you to Jordan goss Perret who produced today's episode, and to our terrific engineer, Violet Furton. Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading. And from the beginning, Jeff Shumlin was on the list. In the decade since we first stepped into that cow patch, Jeff and I had strengthened our bond. He and his brother eventually took over their parents' student travel business. Jeff settled in bucolic Putney, married a photographer, and had two children. He volunteered as a fireman, served as a selectman, spent part of every day riding around on his tractor, and, yup, shoveled manure. And for me, Putney became a sort of storybook playground, a place where I went to chop wood, pick apples, and tap maple syrup. It was a place where Jeff's neighbor stood in the barn, sliced a breath mint with his pocket knife, and stuck a piece in the gap of his front teeth. It was a place where the general store sold Chef Boyardee and Yoo-Hoo's, and made me feel like Homer Price and his donut machine. It was a place I went after every breakup and bad review. And Jeff became that friend from the summer I grew up. He was my camp counselor, racing me to the top of mountains, throwing me in the lake, and nearly shooting me in the head when a deer jumped from behind a tree and leapt over my Elmer Fudd hat. He was my life coach, pushing me to study abroad, hectoring me to marry Linda. He was my big brother, the one whom I always looked up to because I wanted to, because he deserved it. And when I got sick, Jeff was the one who started sending me a postcard every day, snow or shine, vacation or work, and vowed to continue for as long as I was ill. It was this mixture of qualities I wanted Jeff to convey to our girls. The connectedness of someone who understood the value of neighbors, along with the openness of someone who spent half his life living and working in other parts of the world. Jeff would show the girls how to engage their community, then carry that way to experience life with them around the globe. Jeff would teach them how to travel. So a few weeks after my diagnosis, we loaded the car, packed up the girls, and made the drive up Route 91 to our farm away from home in Vermont. That afternoon, Jeff took our girls for a ride on the John Deere, then led them on a chase after runaway pigs. Afterward, he and I drove to an abandoned barn overlooking an apple orchard, with a stretch of green hills in the distance. We set up a pair of beach chairs. The best thing I can do is read this, I said. I took a deep breath and began to read my letter to the dads. Tears modeled my voice, and I could barely complete the words. Will you help be their dad? Will you be my voice? I suddenly felt old, yet I also felt secure. Mostly, as I watched his eyes well up and his body stiffen, I felt sad to be burdening him with my pain. Then the letter was over, and the view before us no longer seemed beautiful. The ground had become almost a burial spot. We were two travelers, arrived in a place where we didn't want to belong. Yes, Jeff said, answering the request that I had forgotten was in my letter. I'd be honored. He paused. But I'm not a man of words. I'm a dad by example. Suddenly my idea was no longer just mine. 
and no longer Linda's either. It was his, too. It had life. <laughs> 